Well, let me invite you to take your Bible. Let's open our Bibles together to Genesis chapter 50. As we begin a, uh, a new series this morning, and so today and over the, the following uh, four weeks, we're going to uh, walk through a series that we've entitled, But God Meant It for Good, Following uh, the Life of Joseph. And uh, this morning, we're going, we're going to sort of go in reverse order. We're going to begin at the end and go back and walk from the beginning to the end. Because I want this morning in our time together to look at one particular phrase in the context of chapter 50, that that will set the tone for how we move through the following four weeks. And so today I want us to build the foundation of a, hopefully a more biblically faithful theology of suffering, and then evaluate the, the narrative based on the truths that we observe from the text uh, and, and through this process of examining these chapters that, that contain the narrative of Joseph's life and learn how God's sovereignty and suffering go hand in hand, how they're parallel truths. They're not contradictory. They're affirming of one another. That we have a right and biblical understanding of, of trial and suffering because uh, we, we all endure those things. I heard someone say, uh, talking about dealing with suffering, that the way that life tends to be is that we're either in the middle of a trial, or we're coming out of one, or we're preparing to go into one. And I thought, well, that's sort of a challenging way to look at life, but it's not terribly untrue. Because we live in a world that is affected by the fall, and we still deal with living in a broken place that, that isn't perfect. And trial does come. And as I was praying through and planning for this series, I did not realize and could not have known at the time that when we came to this week that we would be living in an environment and a context where we were so surrounded by trial and difficulty. I did not know that when this Sunday came about that much of California would be on fire or that there would be devastating, disastrous flooding in much of eastern Kentucky where the death toll continues to rise. I did not know that as I was preparing for these weeks that I would know people who were dealing with wayward children and aging parents Life-altering illness. Very real things that people are dealing with, and those are only the things that I know about because I would be naive as to think that in a gathering uh, as we'll have this morning that people are coming uh, with everything perfect and at ease in their lives. Trial and difficulty touches all of us. And so these texts, I pray, will be helpful in us having a biblical understanding about trial and suffering. And so I want us to go and look in the text. I'm going to read 
Genesis 50 to us. And I realize that it's beginning at the end might be a a frustration, uh, but you have a a Bible, you have access to the Scripture, so you can go back and read through. I encourage you to spend some time in these five weeks and the, the last fifth of the book of Genesis and get very familiar with these texts. Get very familiar with the narrative because when we come to narrative portions of Scripture, uh, we need to understand how we deal with different types of literature in the Bible. When we deal with narrative, we we don't want to just understand the storyline. It's not merely a historical narrative. It is that. But the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. So when we look at historical narrative, particularly here in the Old Testament... We're not merely looking for how does this story unfold. We're looking for how do we know God more clearly and more fully and more accurately through his word. So as we read and as we spend time sort of steeping in these chapters over the next several weeks, I just want to invite you to engage these narrative portions of the text looking for how God's character is on grand display. And very honestly, in the life of Joseph, it's not hard to see. And so Genesis chapter 50, beginning at the end of Joseph's life, the Bible tells us, then Joseph fell on his face and wept over him and kissed him. Because his father Jacob is coming to the end of his life. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so physicians embalmed Israel. And now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, Please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return to you. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father. And as he and as he made you swear, and so Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of the Pharaoh and the elders of the household of all the elders in the land of Egypt. And all of the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, and they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with them both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. And now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the fleshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. And thus his sons did for him, as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, in which Abraham had bought along with the field for the burial site of Ephraim the Hittite. And after he had buried his father Joseph, he returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, for, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. 
You know, think, well, that seems like a lot of just unnecessary information when you're starting at the beginning or starting at the end. It's challenging enough. And now we're talking about burial processes for someone we're not entirely even sure if we're talking about, if you've not read the text before. And so if you're not familiar with the narrative, I'd, there's a lot that's gone on in the previous chapters. Amy and I were watching a movie a couple weeks ago that began at the end and then went back, and, and I hadn't seen the movie before, and so I had to explain to her what was happening. And like, now, you're going to know what this means in about an hour and a half and why this is really important. So I had to pause it so I wasn't talking over it, and then she didn't get part of it. So I said, uh, paid particular attention because all of this is going to make a lot of sense in an hour and a half. If you're familiar with the narrative, you know what's going on here. Because... The, the, the process of what's going on here in the first 14 verses is just someone keeping their word to their father. But as we move into verse 15, the plot is going to thicken a bit. Because if we know the narrative of Joseph, we know that all of this started because he was wonderfully unpopular with his brothers. Because he was clearly his father's favorite. And his father spared no expense in showing his favoritism to his son. And it put him at odds with his brothers. To the point that it was beyond just a sibling rivalry, his brothers sold him into slavery and made up a story that an animal had probably killed him, and it broke their father's heart. And that process set Joseph on a long series of what looks to be catastrophic events of success and trial, success and trial, success and trial that seem wonderfully unfair except for what we're about to hear. Now, again, catch the context. Joseph's father has passed. They've honored his wishes. They've taken him and buried him in the place where he wanted to be buried. Now they're coming back to Egypt. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, shortened Appalachian version, this might not be good for us. What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Maybe putting him in a hole in the ground and then selling him might not have been the best call. Because now that dad's out of the picture, what if all of that stuff he said five chapters ago really doesn't hold? But what if he, and to catch the phrasing, what if he pays us back in full for what we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died saying, put a question mark right there. We've got no record of that. Scholars debate whether this actually happened and we simply don't have a record of it or if these guys who are already pretty good at misrepresenting the truth concocted this story and said, now let's tell him that dad said to take better care of us. 
and send that message ahead. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. Now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, and here's the phrase that begins to build the foundation of our understanding. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived... 110 years, Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the son of Machir and the son of Manasseh, who were born on Joseph's knees. And I'm going to push pause there before the end of the end of the story. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So that, purpose phrase, He could preserve the lives of many. So that, purpose. Well, this morning, I want us to look at some observations we can take from this part of the text and also that we can extrapolate from the previous chapters that we'll go back and walk through. And I want us to see some principles about trial and suffering that we can apply not only to this text, but also as we live out the reality of living in a broken and fallen world where trial and suffering and difficulty is an ever-present reality. And the first thing that I want to, to let the Scripture challenge us on is our perception of, of the purpose of trial and suffering and difficulty. And this is the way that I want us to phrase this in the first point, is that not all suffering is punitive, but all suffering is purposeful. Not all suffering is punitive, but all suffering is purposeful. Now, you may wonder why I begin here. I begin here for twofold purpose. First of all, so that we see biblically what the scripture says about trial and suffering, but also that we get pressed experientially about the way that we attempt to understand and process trial. Webster's Dictionary defines punitive as inflicting or involving or aiming at punishment. And it sounds like this. Often when we're enduring trial or suffering, people ask the question, what did I do wrong to what? To deserve this. Now, when someone asks that question, nobody ever wants us to take out a pen and say, well, let me, let's, let's look. Let's start making a list. I mean, that's what Job's friends assumed. 
Job's friends did wonderfully well with their comfort as long as they kept their mouths closed. They came to him and and sat with him and grieved with him and mourned with him. And then they kind of gave him the old elbow and said, hey, now what'd you really do to deserve all this? And Job's like, I'm just walking around trusting God. If you go back and look at the beginning part of the book of Job, God is the one that brought Job's name into the process. When the adversary came and before God and said, and God said, where are you been? He said, I've been to and fro on the earth, roaming around. God said, have you considered my servant Job? Not all suffering is punitive, but all of it is purposeful. Whenever we encounter trial and whenever we encounter difficulty, whenever we encounter suffering, and our first thought is comparative of what did I do to deserve this, we're already assuming and beginning to assume that that the only purpose that we could possibly be having in, in trial and suffering is that God is somehow vindictive and getting back at us for something wrong that we've done. Not all suffering is punitive. Not all suffering, not all difficulty, not all trial comes as a result of some sort of sinful behavior that God is disciplining out of us. Now, make no mistake, sometimes trial and suffering is as a result of sinful behavior. I mean, if you go back and look in the Old Testament, God opening up the ground and swallowing people up was an option for disciplining disobedience. That happened. Sometimes we encounter various trials because of the natural processes or the natural results of sinful choices. That does happen. But that is not the way that it is all the time. That wasn't the way that it was in Job's case. That doesn't appear to be the way that it was in Joseph's case. If you go back and look in the beginning part of the text, and we're going to do that over the next several weeks, that's why your homework is to get very familiar with the last 25% of the book of Genesis. Joseph doesn't appear to be doing anything except serving in his father's house and watching over sheep. He happened to be born in God's sovereignty as the favorite son, the oldest son of the favorite wife that put him in a position of being favorite, and his father showed him that favoritism, and he was hated by his brothers. His his suffering is as the result of other people's sinful behavior. We're going to walk through those texts. It doesn't appear to be punitive, but it does appear to be very purposeful as we see that Joseph brings again in chapter 45 and also in chapter 50, Clearly saying it, you meant it for evil, but God meant this for good. In the scriptures, particularly here in Joseph's life, we see the suffering that is caused by the sinful behavior of others, the betrayal by his brothers, the false accusation by Potiphar's wife. He even endures suffering and trial because of the careless behavior of others by being forgotten by the baker and the cupbearer. We're going to walk through all of these texts over the next four weeks. 
And I want these realities to press very hard on our perception that anytime we encounter trial or difficulty, that somehow God is being mean to us or being vindictive to us or disciplining us in some way for something that we've done wrong. It may not be that at all, but the other side of that is very hopeful that in every trial, there is some purpose. It's, it's not that God is just taking his hands off the wheel and somehow bad things happen to us. God in his sovereignty allows these things to come to us or brings these things to us for his purposes. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. Purpose. This this seems counterintuitive for us. And I, I want us to rest in that discomfort. I'm not coming to this, these texts and to this outline with any sense of naivete. I would be honest enough to say I would much rather be comfortable than trial. I mean, if, you, if, you want to, if I'm signing up for one of those two things, if I would rather be comfortable or would I rather go through trial and difficulty, if I get to choose, I'm going to always choose comfort. I don't like to hurt. I don't like to endure difficulty. And if that makes me unspiritual, I've been called a lot worse. I'm following this sermon series with another one at the Saudi Daisy campus called Lord, You and I Both Know. And God and I have had that conversation numerous times. Lord, you and I both know. I would much rather be comfortable than not. But Lord, you and I also both know that I learn less when I'm comfortable. I am shaped less into the image of Jesus when I am comfortable. God's purpose here is the fulfillment of the promises that he's made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because he's promised back in Genesis chapter 12 and then in the the covenant that's in Genesis chapter 15 where God makes a a covenant with Abraham to make him the father of many nations. And he repeats that promise to Abraham's son and grandson about the lands that they will possess and the people that they will become. And Joseph seems to have a keen awareness of that in chapter 50, verse 20, because while these brothers meant evil against him, God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive, to preserve his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Because if you jump ahead one chapter, they're going to become many, many people. And there's going to be a Pharaoh that does not know Joseph. There's going to be this whole process of exodus and possessing a land that comes in the following books of the Old Testament. And so while we know the end of this story, Joseph had to live in that truth 
while he was at the bottom of a hole. Suffering, trial, difficulty, it's not always punitive, but it's always purposeful. It doesn't necessarily make it easy, and it is not to take it lightly, but that does bring me hope that in those moments where I am dealing with difficulty, that I have not been abandoned by God, I have not been betrayed by Him, but rather I am right in the midst of His hands because He is accomplishing His good purpose in my life. And the other side of that promise is not only is the trial purposeful, but God will sustain His people through their suffering. God will sustain His people through their suffering. God will sustain us through our suffering. In Joseph's life, we see him being sustained by God in each season. I want us to press pause in chapter 50 and go back to Genesis chapter 39. This is a little bit into the narrative already. Joseph's been thrown into a hole. He's been rescued out of the hole to be sold into slavery. There's some really interesting interactions with Reuben that you should really go back and look. But in chapter 39, we find Joseph in Potiphar's house. We're going to look at this in a couple of weeks. But in 39 verse 2, there's a word here. There's a phrase here. This is, and the Lord was what? With Joseph. That, does that not seem odd? I mean, if the Lord was with him, shouldn't he be back home? Shouldn't he be at a life of ease? Shouldn't he be enjoying freedom? Shouldn't he be enjoying blessing? If you want to subscribe to the, the faith, name it and claim it kind of movement where God's presence and God's blessing always equals financial prosperity and health and wealth, I, I, we could have a wonderful conversation about that. But in the midst of Joseph's trial, we're reminded by this little phrase, and the Lord was with him. The Lord gives favor to him. That comes in a couple verses. That favor didn't equal freedom. That favor at this point did not equal going back home to enjoy the, the, the home of his father. He was still a slave. Now he had been sold into slavery. Now he's Experiencing God's favor, but we know if you know the narrative here that his experience in Potiphar's house is going to end up with him being in prison, falsely accused. In between prison and death, prison was the better option. But the Lord was with them. God sustains his people in the midst of their trial. Because of the third part here, suffering exists under God's sovereignty, and God's sovereignty is not threatened by our suffering. 
Suffering exists under God's sovereignty, and God's sovereignty is not threatened by our suffering. When something bad happens to us, or something that, that we would perceive as bad, and, and, and this is not to diminish the, the difficulty that we encounter. When we encounter something that is life-alteringly bad for us, we can rest in the truth that, that those experiences or those circumstances do not and cannot create our understanding of who God is and His character. We don't look to our experiences to understand who God is, but rather, as we experience trial, we need to be pressed into the truth of Scripture so that we can know God's character by the way He's revealed Himself to us. We must know God's character through the revelation of Himself through the Scriptures, not our own emotional reaction in response to circumstance. So I want us to move from the Old Testament to the New for just a moment because I want us to see a couple of things that, that our brother Paul writes. And, and Paul was not unfamiliar with trial. Colossians chapter 1. When people ask me what my favorite chapter in the Bible is, it, it shifts with typically whatever I'm studying at the time. But Colossians chapter 1 is always up there. Because in the middle of Colossians chapter 1, Paul just loses himself in talking about Jesus. And in describing him in the middle of chapter 1, Paul writes, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And here's where I want us to see this reality of God's sovereignty. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all, this, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So when we encounter trial, pain, difficulty, circumstances that are beyond what we think we can endure or handle. In Joseph's sake, or in Joseph's illustration, things that from our perspective we didn't earn or deserve, that came by the actions of others, or the inaction of others, or as the result of just living in a fallen world, we live in this truth that all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God is sovereign, and he is present. When we rejoice and when we weep, he is present. 
He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And in the midst of that sovereignty, and that sovereignty not being threatened by our condition or by our circumstances, we also recognize this reality that in His presence, God's grace is sufficient. Again, we lean on the writings of our brother Paul. Look over in his second letter to the church at Corinth. I want us to see a couple of places here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and to Timothy our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Things that we observe from that text about God's comfort in his presence while we endure trial and struggle. Verse 3, he is the God of all comfort. All comfort comes from him. And he comforts us in all of our affliction. There is nothing that we will endure that God's comfort cannot bring help to. So he is the God of all comfort. He is the provider of it. His comfort is sufficient for all of our afflictions. And here's there's purpose in that how we can also bring that to others so that we may be able also to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's part of the beauty of being part of his people. When we encounter various trials, there are other people with whom we are connected in this thing we call the church who have been there before. And can come along with some experience and walk roads with us. I mentioned earlier in preparation for this of knowing people who are dealing with wayward children. Guess what? In a church there have been people who have dealt with wayward children before. And can walk along with some some empathy maybe that others can't. Or the trial or the struggle of dealing with aging parents. Or life-altering illness. One of the things about trial is very often we feel alone and isolated. Like nobody's ever been through this before. Yes, they have. And one of the ways that God comforts us is he brings people who have walked the road and who have endured and who have experienced the faithfulness of God. Who have experienced the comfort that is beyond understanding. 
that can come alongside, and as the Scripture calls us to do, to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. God is good in the midst of our trial. And his grace is sufficient. You move over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes specifically about that. Paul writes in the first part of chapter 12 about an experience that uh, might potentially give him the opportunity to boast. But in verse 7 he says, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Some sort of physical affirmity that has been brought to Paul to keep him from exalting himself. And concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Three times. He asked if it could be removed, and God said, my grace is sufficient. And we want to come to that from, from our perspective and think, if this is Paul, think about how much more effective he could be for the gospel if you would just make this go away and he didn't have to worry about this physical infirmity. His grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. That presses us in our desire to be self-sufficient. To be able to come to the place where with Paul, we would say, well then, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. When I am weak, then I am strong. You don't hear many prosperity gospel preachers preach much out of 2 Corinthians 12. kind of undoes their theology. But it does help shape and form a biblically faithful theology of suffering. That in our suffering, God's grace is sufficient. That leads us to the last thing, and Paul touches on it here in Timon. And Joseph talks about it in chapter 50 of the book of Genesis. Ultimately, that suffering is beneficial. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not enjoyable. It's suffering. It's not enjoyable. It's not easy. I'm not making light of it. I'm not being careless or dismissive. I 
I'm not coming as one who has been devoid of trial and suffering. but who ha- one who has walked through depths of trial and suffering and seen God to be faithful and seen God to be true to His Word. Because in this reality of trial and suffering existing under the sovereignty of God, and that it is purposeful, it is beneficial because God's purpose is achieved. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Sometimes that good is in our personal life. Sometimes that good is in God's ultimate plan. We have the benefit of reading the rest of the narrative and taking those promises and those biblical principles and putting them to place in our life and thinking, I want to view the circumstances in which I may find myself through the truth of Scripture because my, my heart will lie to me. My heart will lie to me. But ultimately, suffering is beneficial. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 70, 71, Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And, and of course, if you're familiar with the Scripture at all, you knew that at the beginning of this message, we'd end in James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Some people view James as very harsh. I view James as very hopeful. He doesn't say consider it all joy, that trial is hard, or rejoice because you have this life-altering circumstance, but rather in the midst of it, rejoice because God is faithful. And He's at work. And He's good. And He's the God of all comfort. And He comforts us in all of our afflictions. And even in the midst of trial, He's working to accomplish His Purposes, but also to accomplish his purposes in our life to make us more like Christ. And he's given us the gift of the church so that when we engage in various trials, we don't do so alone, but we do so in a community of faith where God maybe has worked with some people in these similar kind of things before so that they can come along and bring comfort to us. If you noticed in the video earlier, I said the word together about 300 times. When I showed that to Amy, she said, you said together a lot. And I said, yes, I did. With a point. Because we're supposed to live life together. Because suffering is hard enough without doing it on your own. Trial is difficult enough without trying to do so in isolation. 
But because of what we're about to celebrate in sharing communion together, through the commonality of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are family. And knowing that in this week and in the weeks to come, as we look at the life of Joseph, we're going to be walking through these passages together with people who are dealing with some very real trial right now. And we have the gift of bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ and doing so together because of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. So let me invite you into these next four weeks. As we learn from the life of Joseph. And ask God to shape our understanding of trial. And how we do so in the community of faith as we live life together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us this morning to open your word together. Lord, I pray that I've handled your word accurately. And Lord, now as we come to your table, we thank you for the gift of doing so together. And may you refresh us and remind us Thank you for this moment this morning that you've given us to come and to be together.